If you're not ready to change gear neurologically, this podcast is not for you. These particularly challenging times can actually be seen as a life-giving opportunity for expansion, disguised as an impossible situation. As we grow into our own wholeness through this global great awakening, we are more aware than ever that we are all one. Join with us to raise the collective consciousness, whole and one. You've got this. Here is your host, Sheila Ihirain. Hello and welcome everyone to Whole in One with Sheila, a show designed to introduce you to the people and the ideas that will bring you ever closer to mind-derived health optimization. Through a series of interviews with specially selected guests who share their own stories of love, wisdom and truth, we aim to teach you how to self-regulate, how to quiet that inner critic, and how to build a healthy relationship with anxiety. Anxiety and fear are natural human emotions. It's never about trying to get rid of anxiety, rather how to make it work for you adaptively to keep you safe on the one hand and stretching yourself to engage with and achieve more of what's good for you on the other. Fear and anxiety are like our body's alarm system. You don't want to disable it, but you do need to learn how to differentiate between real and perceived threats in your environment. Fear is an emotion that's experienced when we are actually in a dangerous situation, whereas anxiety is an emotion that occurs when we expect or anticipate that something unpleasant might happen. On a roller coaster, for example, anxiety is what we feel when we climb the first steep incline in anticipation of crossing the most elevated point. Fear kicks in when we actually begin the high-speed descent. Trauma and PTSD produce levels of fear and anxiety that cause hypervigilance and engage the fight-flight-freeze response pervasively and over protracted periods of time, perhaps, until addressed and deconditioned. So you can't have trauma or fear without anxiety, but you can have anxiety without fear. Join us weekly on Whole in One to learn the mind hacks, to build the resilience that you need to manage your self-talk so you can rewrite the narrative you've been living by. See and hear your story in ours. You can't rewrite the beginning of your story, but we can help you to write a totally different ending. We are all one. Nothing has any meaning except the meaning that you give it. Tell yourself that different story. We're joined today by a celebrated author from Dublin in Ireland a keynote speaker, a life change strategist, a university lecturer in both Trinity College and University College Dublin, as well as a radio presenter on Dublin City FM. This man has completely turned his life around in just eight years. Having been a chronic heroin addict for 15 years, at one point actually deemed too high risk for detox. On the 8th of October, 2013, in what he describes as a great awakening. Today's guest experienced his first clean day. 
his recently published memoir, Bonus Time, is a soulfully crafted pen picture of his demise and his subsequent rise. Addiction had nearly killed this man, but that fateful autumn day just eight years ago marked the end of the old and the beginning of the new, a shift in perspective that is ever since informing his sustainable self-healing, strength and wellness and has now been translated into a bank of affordable and accessible online courses in which he shares the secrets of his rebirth. Instead of perceiving his addiction as a failure, our guest today, Brian Penny, embraced the learnings, embarked on what he perceived as a second chance at life. He went to university to study the intricacies of human behavior and devotes himself now to sharing his wisdom in his writings and his courses. Brian Penny, you are so welcome to the show. Thank thanks you for, for joining us. Thanks for having me, Sheila. I'm so looking forward to this talk and thank you for the beautiful introduction. It was really lovely. Thank you. Oh, amazing. Thank you. Can I thank you on a very personal note for uh, being my wingman on this maiden voyage into media, making dreams come true at so many levels, Brian. Um, I know for sure that I couldn't cross the rivers of change with a nicer companion. So I do thank you. Thank Brian, you. the intro tells the story it, quite in a nutshell. It's, it's, uh, it's a tragedy and a success. Tell us where it began. Where it began. It, it, it's, it's funny. My story, like many people's stories, began the moment you were born. But really, the crux of my story began the moment I was born because I was born with a condition known as intestinal malrotation. For lay uh, listeners, that's basically my intestines were twisted. And I won't go into the depths of that, but I was basically misdiagnosed several times. I lost half of my birth weight. My mom, I was limp in my mom's arms and she went back to the hospital and they, they waved me in the hospital after loads of misdiagnoses. They were like, they, they taught me mom was a silly young mother that was just being a bit silly. It was only colic. So they put me on a weighing scales and I weighed half of my birth weight. So I was rushed to surgery into a different hospital, police escort through the streets. And I, I, I was given a 5% chance of survival and I was I went under the knife. Now, what many people don't realize is that it was only in 1985 that the medical practice realized that infants needed a general anesthetic while going under the knife. It was to do with this, this woman had a, her child was having an open heart surgery and the, the, the kid went under the knife without a general anesthetic. And there was this big public outcry. And based on weak neurological evidence from the 1940s, the doctors realized they'd been making a huge mistake so like many people that had operations as infants at that at that age in before 1985 i had surgery without without a general anesthetic now based on complications from that surgery i cried for the first year of my life and now as a as a doing phd and i've done a degree in psychology i've learned for the first year of my life i basically associate everything in the world with pain with stress were all kinds of um, all kinds of pain and, and just these associations were created and I was just constantly in fight or flight. Now up until I was 25 years of age, as you described, I had that clean day, that my first day clean. I was actually afraid of my heartbeat, my pulse, and my breath. Crazy thing, especially when you try to meditate and you're afraid of your breath. That was an interesting experience when I first uh, listened to meditation. But that sort of experience primed me for a life of anxiety and agitation. 
I'd, I'd other traumas within my life as well. And then by the time I hit me early teens, I came from a, you'd call it a disadvantaged area. I started playing around with drugs and they just really took away those demons. They, they silenced the anxiety. They took away the pain, the compulsive thinking. And it was just, I describe it as just like my first time doing heroin specifically was like a soft, warm blanket just wrapped around my soul, protecting me from my demons. And from then on, I just, I was brought, I just sort of dived into a world, a world of addiction. Your book describes that initial lure to explore so credibly, Brian. The illusion and the false hope of escape from the voices in your head and the fallacious faith in a pain relief that just never comes. That presumed elixir, in fact, feeding the anxiety and weakening your resolve. Tell us about the mirage of that first experience, Brian. Yeah, and it's funny, in the, the book chapter, I, I have a the chapter in my book, which is the first night down heroin, I have it called Fallen in Love. And it was literally like a seductress. It was like a voice, keep mm. me close. Yeah. And heroin that night brought me to heaven, but it soon brought me to hell. Absolutely. And as you can see, the, the next seven or eight chapters of that book is the hell that I lived in for 18 years, predominantly 12, 13 years of serious hell before I really found, found recovery. Addiction is such a narcissist. The gaslighting and coercive control of your operating systems from within, it's just toxic. The negotiations are exhausting at first and crippling eventually. And you don't have to be on a park bench with a brown paper bag or shooting up down an alleyway to be in the grips of addiction. Addiction is a master of disguise. You were a functioning addict, weren't you, Brian, for quite a while before the House of Cards came down? Yeah, and it's it's really interesting. Like if you if you look at pictures, people have to, I have pictures on my website uh, to see what I looked like before my addiction, and I looked. I looked terrible. I looked absolutely terrible. I looked like I was about to die. But it was the fact that people thought I had an alcohol issue, which is more acceptable. And I was sort of allowed to keep up in the job. And that was one of the reasons. I had great friends in the job. I was enabled as well. But in, in the end, I, I lost everything. I lost my job. I lost my health. I lost my mind. I went into pharmacopsychosis. And I lost every important relationship in my life. And I had no way of making money. I had no way to fund my addiction anymore. I was in serious debt. I was in a lot of trouble. And my body was giving up. To be quite honestly, my body was giving up. And I remember thinking, right, I have to do something differently. I have to, I'm going to die if I don't do something differently. So he says, right, I'm going to try to get off drugs. And um, you, you mentioned at the start in the introduction, like the stories we tell ourselves and our self-talk is so important. I'm obsessed with that. I've developed courses on self-talk. And for me, the story of my life was I cannot cope with anxiety. I need heroin to survive. And I acted out that story with, with a vengeance. I really did. But when I tried to get clean, I says, right, this isn't working anymore. The drugs are causing anxiety. I didn't realize that then, but that's what was happening. And I tried to do something another way. So as you mentioned again at the start, I tried to get into a detox facility, but I was deemed too much of a risk because of the amount of benzodiazepine I was taking on top of the other drugs. Now, there was an option to go to another, <clears throat> excuse me, another uh, detox facility, but I would have had to wait eight weeks. I didn't think I would live in for eight weeks. It was that dire. Mm -hmm. So I decided to do a detox at home and a home detox off benzos to, so I could get off benzos and get into a methadone detox. And two days into that detox was not only the most painful night of my life, it was also the most important. And I woke up, I mean, sitting around the floor, blood everywhere. And what had happened was the, the risk of why they wouldn't let me go into it, it, it not to do with the, uh, the reason why I really need to do a benzo detox, because I was at risk of having a seizure. 
So I had a seizure, a grand mal convulsive seizure, where all, all of the cells in your brain literally fire at the same time, like a cascading effect, and all your muscles convulse. And what had happened to me was I'd actually driven my teeth through the center of my tongue. And it was one of the most painful experiences of my life. I, I was out cold. Uh, my family called the ambulance. I was rushed to hospital. And I, I've only glimpses of that memory. I don't remember much about that little glimpses, but I vividly remember waking up on a hospital trolley several hours later. And I was emotionally, mentally, and physically broken, lying on this trolley. I'll never forget the room, the smell of disinfectant with sickly sweet smell of vomit as well, and the taste of blood in my mouth. And the orange walls, I'll never forget the orange walls, like they were taunting me. And when I think of them this day, I get a shiver through my bones. But um, I remember just trying to pull myself up off the trolley. And I remember my legs started dangling off the sides. And all of a sudden, I just became fixated on this fire extinguisher that was sitting on the wall, that was attached to the wall. And I was in like tunnel vision, just looking at this fire extinguisher. And I was saying to myself, that's a fire extinguisher. That's, that's the color red. And I couldn't put the concept, I couldn't put words together in, in a sentence. And I remember looking around the rest of the room and trying to make sense of my environment and nothing made sense, nothing stuck together. I, I describe it like links of a chain that I knew should piece together, but I didn't know how to piece them together anymore. And I remember just thinking to myself, oh my God, that's brain damage. You're done. Game over. You're done, brain damage. You've messed it all up now. And I remember waiting for this panic attack and, and these, the anxiety that drove my entire addiction just to overwhelm me. And as I sat down, started to lean back down on the trolley, I remember just saying to myself, I can't do this anymore. I am done. You win. Game over. You beat me. I surrender. I'm putting up the white flag. And I didn't realize it at the time, but a sense of calm came over me. And I believe that was the moment that allowed me to completely transform my life. Now, I had another couple of uh, hospital visits, another couple of seizures. I'd wait four more weeks for benzos to be free of benzos. I finally got into a, ben a, a methadone detox facility. It was a lovely little farm up in Nall on the outskirts of Dublin. And I'd five more tough weeks in there coming off methadone and opiate addiction for a long, long time. But there was, I began reading about psychology and I began hearing about meditation for the first time and trying to practice meditation, awareness, Eastern philosophy. And it was like this energy, as I was getting close to my first clean day, there was like this energy coming into my body. Physically, it was really, really tough, but there was an energy and a life coming back into my body. And I remember like a whisper going through my mind was, wow, you might have a life again. And it, well, that was special to me. I was in awe at the fact I might have had another shot, which the name of my book is Bonus Time, of course. So I'll never forget on the 8th of October, 2013, that was my first official clean day. And I was uh, woke up before everyone else in the detox facility. And it was like the world was just beckoning me outside. I went there. It was a lovely October, sunny, dew-soaked morning. The sun was only coming up, coming over the horizon. And I'll never forget, it was like the dewdrops were like glistening, like diamonds on the grass. It was like nature was breathing on me. It was like everything that was once hollow was just full of depth. Everything had energy to it. And I just remember this profound moment of just saying, wow. And I was just blown away by this moment. Now, I was fascinated with this experience. I was getting very curious about psychology and Zen and meditation and all these different spiritual principles. And um, I, I became to wonder, why did I suffer? Why don't I suffer anymore? 
how I can I share it with other people? And what is this relationship between my mind going quiet? Because I had this realization, my mind went quiet. And when my mind went quiet, it was like anxiety left me. All these tormented emotions left me. So what is this relationship? So as you, as you so beautifully put it at the start, that set me up on, a, on, a, on, a, on, a, on an incredible journey in recovery. I went and got a degree in psychology. I got a scholarship uh, to do my PhD. I've since become a lecturer in neuroscience in Trinity College in UCD. And I wrote my book about all of my experiences. But really for me, it's all about sharing. In, in 2015, I began designing what I call a program for life. And it's a three-tier program, really. The first part of this is the foundations like self-awareness, spiritual principles, self-observation, mindfulness, and all of these different techniques. Then it's developing a values-based system to, to, to act and make your decisions of life upon. And then it's all these tools and tactics. And for me, I think, as I said, self-talk is really important. I changed the narrative of my life from I can't cope to adversity doesn't stop me. It fuels my ability to thrive. And I believe I've changed the narrative and I've been able to change my life by changing my emotions and change how I feel. And that was really my, my, my story in a nutshell. Well, Brian, it's such an amazing story. It is such a success story and really a champion's change for the world. Everybody that's listening in today needs to access those courses. I have personal and professional experience of the courses, thanks to your kind self. And in research for the interview today, I was able to access in particular, most recently, the self-talk course. And I recommend everybody the world over, whether or not, like we began talking about addiction and this is under the overarching idea of addiction. But you know what? We're all addicts and potential addicts because every pleasure pursued to excess is an addiction. Food, sex, substances, gambling, everything. So we all need to do a little bit of work on that. And it does come from quietening your mind to see which of your basic emotional needs are not being met in balance and which is leaving you vulnerable to addiction. So addiction gives us the sense that we're getting our basic needs met. And we're not, of course, because anything that we take from the outside in that we're not making an effort to get in order to feel that our emotional needs are met is it's no good. It, there's no payoff. So when you were making this 360 degree turnaround, Brian, you felt something like wonder and awe within. So that spiritual space that you leaned into is clearly very significant. The meaning and purpose that was formerly absent in your life was very prevalent. And that was the new blanket, nice warm blanket that was wrapping itself around you. So where does spirituality fit in your world now? Yes, spirituality. It's a very loaded word, isn't it? And it's an interesting word as well. So I wouldn't be religious per se, but spirituality for me, I think, is more encapsulated in the word awareness. I think a true awareness of life. And and, and there's a great story that I loved. It's by Anthony Anthony DeMello, a great book called Awareness. And he tells this beautiful story at the start of the book about this little little, uh, eagle's egg that he found. So he walked out onto his farm. This farmer walked onto his farm, found this little eagle's egg. And the eagle, he couldn't put it back up into the tree. So he put the little eagle's egg in his chicken coop. So the little eagle hatched thinking he was a chicken. As the months and years went by, he clucked like a chicken, at the ground, at the, worms like a chicken and, and flapped his wings like a chicken. Then as the years went by, he seen this beautiful golden eagle soaring above the sky. And he was like to his little chicken friends, wow, what's that? And they're like, ah, oh, that's the eagle, the king of the sky. 
but we're just lowly chickens and we belong to the earth. And the little eagle died thinking he was a chicken. It's a tragic, tragic story. Oh, it's a brilliant story. It's a brilliant story. Brilliant. And what Andy DeMello was trying to say was that many people are eagles living, thinking they're chickens. They're stressed out. They're anxious. They have this negative self-talk, the inner critic berating them, not believing in themselves, comparing themselves to other people, letting other things that are outside of control, control our lives. But if you let go of these things and you master your mind and you master yourself, talk you can fly out that chicken coop and soar into the skies and i think for me that's the essence of awareness and an energy comes into your life you're not being um consumed by negative thinking which is a linked to negative emotions and it allows you to be free and energy and for me that encapsulates really um what spirituality is for me for sure and obviously in your meditation and your mindfulness you're getting the opportunity to be metacognitive so you you, you can establish some space um you know, that lovely Viktor Frankl idea of between the stimulus and the response, there's that time and and grabbing that nanosecond just to become metacognitive and observe your world. So be the observer of your thoughts, be the observer of the things that may formally have dragged you down and dragged you into addictive practices, because of course, addiction hijacks our need to grow. And it's our curiosity that enables us to learn and to grow. So we need our curiosity to be able to take the risks, but we need to do that to learn for ourselves. We need to do it in healthy ways. So you were clearly in this restorative space that you were in and you were learning about awareness. You were also tapping into innate resources that you have and always had. And I think that's the message I'd love to get out here today, chatting with you and having read everything you've ever posted. I'm such a fan of your work. I am your number one fan. Hence the the maiden voyage with you in the pillion seat. Um, I just think you're amazing and you've championed so much change in the lives of so many people that I've worked with um, that I feel the need to pay homage to you and to say and, and to make sure that everybody knows they need to access your coursework, whether or not they were ever aware they were addicts and they were maybe living less than their best selves. When they access these courses, they realize, God, I have more fuel in the tank. I need to use it. So, Brian, you know, when you made those changes so successfully and you were drinking in this whole new you, you got very busy, I see, as I check the little pathway of your world. Did you exchange one very unhealthy addiction for another by any stretch of the imagination? It's a great question. And I used to say I switched addictions all of a sudden, like that dopamine monster wanted drugs, drugs, drugs. When I got clean, the dopamine monster was still hungry. And I says, learn, learn, learn. And I exercise and I eat healthy. Now, I used to say, yeah, they're positive addictions and that's okay. And I do believe that's okay. But I think a nicer way of describing it is, is like transforming desires. And I think that's really, really important. But I think the, 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 the equalizer here is, is back to awareness. Johan Harry says, uh, sobriety is not the opposite of addiction, connection is. And I love that. But I'd actually go one further and I'd say, I think awareness is the opposite of addiction. And awareness brings connection into your life. So once you are aware of your behaviors, I think that's the equalizer. And for me, self-awareness is crucial. I have a morning routine. I practice uh, self-awareness. I practice meditation in the morning. I set myself up for the day. And balance then is a really important value in my life. So I, I, I use the balance wheel of life. So I, I look at my life on a regular basis and say, am I putting enough energy into my relationships, into my work life, into my hobbies, into rest and looking after my self-care? And I think that's really important, but you've got to be careful because the world is a busy, busy place Absolutely. and it can bring you out of awareness very, very quickly. Very quickly. But then with the skills that you teach, 
we can become mindful. Just breathing just slows down. It's so we have it. It's in our pocket. We have it naturally. Mother Nature gave it to us. We just need to know that when we breathe diaphragmatically, just slow down that exhale. Seven in, 11 out. You can do it on the bus. Nobody knows you're doing it. Years ago, they used to do it into a brown paper bag and it was dead obvious that you were having a little panic attack. Now we're way more aware and neuroscience allows us to know that we can do these things very subtly. Just gently breathe in through your nose for seven, for a count of seven, not seven seconds or you'll cope. And gently breathe out through your nose for 11 seconds, that longer, slower exhale, engaging the parasympathetic nervous system, the rest and digest. And we can do that anywhere, anytime. I was doing it while you were talking in the beginning, Brian, I might as well admit, because I was feeling a little bit nervous. And as you were chatting and I was doing my 7-11, nobody would have known. And I just complete, I felt my shoulders dropping I felt my jaw dropping and I just felt myself relaxing into the interview. And I feel that I can access my neocortex more easily now. It's like a little rope ladder up to my thinking brain, which wasn't existent in that little split second when I became a little bit nervous. So if you're about to give a talk, about to do an exam, you know, about to do anything, just even busy, too busy, as you say in life, you can just do your 7-Eleven breathing. Mother Nature gave it to us. It's free and it's there infinitely. So we're going to go into an ad break now, Brian, and we're going to come back and chat a little bit about a pause. So it's a perfect segue into the pause that we're going to take to chat a little bit later about the fact that there's room on the cycle of change for relapse. We need to be real. Okay. So obviously, if we're in pre-contemplation for a period of time about kicking our habit that doesn't serve us, we will probably then, and particularly if we get some help and some very good mentorship. Now, remember, there's, there's really good therapy out there, but there's not so good therapy as well. So when you're dealing with something as tentative as this, you need to be very careful, um, not perhaps to throw yourself completely into all the self-help books by yourself. Do get some really good guidance. So when you get into that stage of contemplation, you know, you're on the cusp of change, then you work your way in a very structured way into determination, then action. Green light, you're going to do this and you decide a plan and a plan to maintain. But you also need at the exact same point as you're planning for maintenance, you need to plan for relapse so that if you fall off that wheel on the cycle of change, that you know how to get back up there really quickly. And if you can't get back up there by yourself, that you learn how to ask for the help that you need. And it's absolutely okay. We're human. That's okay. And it's all about that lovely survival that you talked about. You talked about your sense at that, that, at that end moment for you, you had this natural inclination to survive. We all have it. I mean, you might, it might've been just easier for you to say, oh, look, I'm, I'm giving up. I've, I've had it. And in fact, in physical shoes, you actually did. But something else took over. Evolution intends us to survive. And so if we fall off that cycle of change, we can get back up there. There's a plan for the relapse that can happen in the pause on the subject of which we're going to take a little um, segment of refreshment. And we'll be right back. Don't go anywhere. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. You are listening to Hole in One with Sheila. To reach the program today, call in to 1-888-346-9141. That's 1-888-346-9141. Outside of North America, reach us at 001 480 553-5760 or send Sheila an email from the Voice America show page. Now back to Hole and One. 
Okay, welcome back, everybody. You are tuned into Voice America's Empowerment Channel, and this is Hole in One with Sheila. I'm joined today by Brian Penny from Dublin in Ireland. Brian was a heroin addict, and he's now a PhD student, a lecturer, and many, many more wonderful things. So we're chatting about Brian's uh, very meandering journey heretofore, which has taken him to a point of total change in his life. Brian manages his self-talk and has written courses to teach you how to do the same. He has rewritten the narrative of his life, so he doesn't let that old story define him anymore. He's imagining his future. It's just as easy, same biological process, just as easy to do that as it is to live your life through the lens of your past. And Brian, just before the break, we were chatting about pause. So you've done this wonderful work, your years and years in you know, your lovely, clean, new way of living. Life is good. You've got love in your life. You're building your career. In fact, actually, you've put down the very thing that ruined the, first, the morning of your life to make it the sunshine of the afternoon of your life. It just couldn't get better. Does it mean that you're not vulnerable? That, you know, you are completely footloose and fancy free of that former addiction, never to fall foul of it again? No, certainly not, Sheila. And it's really, really important to, to talk about. I, I really talk about this in podcasts. It never really comes up, to be quite honest, but I write about it in the book. So I, I mentioned that I developed my program for life in 2015, two years after I got clean. The reason, the, cat, the, the catalyst for that program of life was a little mini relapse that I had. So I was in college. I went back to college and I became obsessed with college, lost in the madness, back in the rat race. I, this, I became lost I, I became unaware I became unaware again I lost that beautiful life feeling that I was gifted in 2013 and I was doing deliveries to finance myself through college and I got a flu symptoms and I started taking sulpidin opiates I liked the sulpidin and I started taking more sulpidin and I, I I was going to different chemists to buy the sulpidin delude myself that I'm not really I'm okay I'm not an addict doing all the behaviors I used to do on a smaller scale and I had this eye-opening moment in Minute University looking at these giant psychiatrists and I said wow I don't see them trees like I used to when I got clean and it was a moment of awareness that allowed me to realize what I was actually doing I was getting lost in the rat race and I was going to leave college I was going to go over to Tibet and, and live in a temple meditating for the rest of my life striving the addictive self striving for that lovely life feeling As again as you do, it wasn't the solution. So I, that's when I started developing that, that program for life and really start doubling down on my mental and emotional fitness in that. And I think it's really important that you've got to stay aware to the stresses of life, things that can make you relapse. I don't think anyone, anybody in recovery, no matter how long you are, and I've heard loads of stories, people can relapse. And it's really looking after, like when you relapse, you, you, you like most people, for me, anxiety drove me addiction, anxiety and stress. So if you start feeling them negative feelings, again, you're going to want to escape them. So I think you need to really stay on top of yourself and keep working on yourself so you don't feel, feel the need to use. Now, I would say I'm five years after implementing that, 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 that um, program for life in my own life, I have a very structured morning routine. I meditate a lot. I look after me health. I take breaks. I look after me self-care. I have great connections with people. And I do feel, I'm not saying I'm invincible, but I do feel very, very strong in addiction. Like nothing can really stop me. I nearly feel post-recovery at this stage that I'm just on another, in another path. But it's always very important to keep an eye on them different things. 
And for me, I, I done recently done a course. I don't think I chatted to you about the shield. It was with one of the leading psychologists, Dr. Von Barnes Holmes. And we looked at sort of unlocking the secrets of my recovery. And some of the things that we looked at was it was a radical acceptance of my anxiety. I accepted that anxiety is there. I couldn't force it back. I couldn't fight it. I accepted that it was there. Then I was open to change, a new way of life, meditation, self, psychology, learning. Uh, openness was key. But the real key piece was I had, un- you mentioned needs at the start. I had some very unfulfilled needs. I love being on radio. I love doing podcasts. I love doing public speaking. So one of my needs, it was visibility i love being visible i didn't have that in addiction anxiety took it away from me so now with a newfound purpose i've i'm fulfilling those unfulfilled needs with radical acceptance that anxiety is there and an openness to change and for me that has been the secret of my recovery but but it's it's really important and i love this part the pause technique is to keep an eye on these things and it's so important what you say is crucial when you fall which can happen it's to jump straight back in and that it's not failure it's a step down the ladder you might have taken 10 steps up it's one step down jump back on the ladder and keep climbing absolutely brian of course it's not reframe it as a resource because you if and you need to realize as well that the day you because we're talking about addiction but and we're talking about that horrific period in your life which was heroin addiction and it's all very obvious to everybody as the very very deadly scenario that could have been but you know we also need to take into our conversation the people who are just drinking too much just you know wine o'clock is four o'clock because it's covid we're on covid time you know and all of these things cigarettes the person who wants to give up cigarettes and for some odd reason they think they can't there's you know answer there therein lies the answer but that's the chat for another day yeah um you know and what we're trying to do is we're trying to just reach out in a very accessible way, in a very ordinary, very real way to people to say, listen, we're human. We are all vulnerable to addiction. But when we find our authentic self and when we can, as you so beautifully say every time and poetically say, make your value-based decisions as opposed to emotional decisions. And just remember to go back to that. Just be cognitive. The neocortex, the crown and glory of the human race, use it. It's there for that reason. So think just a split second, just take that nanosecond, think about it. And remember that relapse isn't necessarily when you have the pint, if you've given up the booze or when you have the fag, if you've given up the smokes, it's definitely not having the sulfidine if you have the fluey symptoms and you, you know, try and go to the different pharmacies so nobody notices. So you're actually fooling yourself. It's way before that. It's the day before it or the week before it when the passing thought slipped through and you let it. And in your mind's eye, you thought, oh, I didn't see that. I'll pretend I didn't see that thought. I'll just drop it in there and just crack on. Because somewhere, those neural pathways that you hardwired over 20 years are still there. And they are. And those neurons that fired together for all those years and wired together are hardwired. And they don't prune apart specifically or automatically just because you decide to be clean. They prune apart over a period of time because of what you've just explained so brilliantly as always Brian and that is that you replace the euphoric memory and association you had with the substance with a new way of living a better way a way that meets your basic needs naturally and organically and healthily and wholesomely a new way of living that helps you to feel at peace and feel the wonder and awe of the world in which you live again and feel like living feel like living because when you're an addict 
you don't feel like living. You don't love yourself. You, I thought it was so interesting when you said that, you know, your life was falling apart. Um, you, I, I needed to work, you said. And, you know, you would think that you're going to follow by saying, because I have bills to pay and you didn't. You said, I had to feed my addiction. You know, and that's absolutely the honest, real language of an addict. Well, I don't have to work. I can hardly get out of the bed. I can, you know, but I hardly have to work because I have to earn the bucks because I've got to get some drugs and, and actually I'll sell drugs to get drugs. You know, you will do anything. You're somebody else. But the person that you are today couldn't do that because that was the old paradigm. So that, that Brian is dead and gone. That Brian informed the beautiful new Brian that you are today. And that Brian is very safe on the cycle of change. Nonetheless, as you say, we all need to remember post-addiction withdrawal symptoms or syndrome. So because we've said that we have hardwired those pathways, they are there. So we just need to, you know, tip our cap to it, acknowledge that we know that. And that's the pause that we need to keep an eye out for weeks after, months after, years after, decades after we've kicked a substance that didn't work for us. And all we're doing is we're just tipping our hat to it and saying, I notice, I realize, yeah, that's okay. That's how the architecture of my brain works. And it works so well for me and so adaptively in so many ways. I'm not going to choose to ignore that knowledge when I know it intellectually, just because it might really please me or it might be make me feel upset in myself. Instead, use it to power us forward into safety. And as you say, be ready for relapse so that if you do feel yourself thinking about it, grab a hold of that thought. You've got that nanosecond. And if you do relapse, get back up on the cycle of change quite quickly. So what yeah. would you think, Brian, then um, going forward? You know, what would your advice, what does whole in one mean to you? What would your advice be to our listenership around how people can access their wholeness you know, we're, we're pack animals. We're, we're in COVID time where there's a lot of separation. Um, what can we do to give us that sense of community? Yeah, it's a, it's a lovely question, Sheila. And I think for me, oneness and wholeness, that kind of a feeling, like I do believe we are all connected in some way. Like there's this universal connection and we are all connected. Like if you even think, look at your phone, look at your smartphone, who created the screen, who mined the glass, who mined the, the metals for that? How many people have had an impact on you holding that in your hand for us doing this Zoom call here? I'm looking at my laptop. Millions of people have had an impact. We are all one, we are all whole. And it's really, really important. And I think it's an idea of harnessing that energy because we're all disconnected at the moment, let's say in physical, in physical space. And there's nothing like a hug, that oxytocin feeling, that, that neurotransmitter that makes us feel close and good, the love drug and stuff like that, the love uh, neurotransmitter, I should say. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. but it's, 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 it's really harnessing the power of connection in your mind. Like you can do that in your mind to feel connected, practice gratitude, visualize your future of where you want to be, visualize yourself hugging your family, hugging your friends. And like the power of gratitude and visualization, two core features of my own personal morning routine, they are grounded in science. Like neuroscience shows if you're visualizing something that you enjoy, that you love, or you're being grateful for your nephew's smile, I'm always being grateful for my beautiful little nephew's smile. 
I'm smiling now. I can feel the gratitude in my body. I can feel it. It has a biological impact on you. The neuroscience shows that. So it's that's a great way of doing it. It's using these techniques, using these skills. And really, meditation is great just for bringing us all together. And, and lastly, if you're feeling a little bit low, reach out. People are nicer than you think if you give them a chance. That's been my experience. Oh, they sure are. They sure are. Oh, you and I did chat. We, we engaged on that subject before. So people are amazing and we underestimate the community, in fact, that we're in. And even this online community that we're all engaging with now, you know, it's amazing the connections you feel and they're very genuine and that does produce that oxytocin. And we can establish love is a wonderful thing. I, we, I always say love is the answer. That's my answer to everything, that love is the answer. I actually shared a little poem with you that I had written. I, I shared it in an email a few weeks ago that I had written about love. Beautiful, yeah. um, and I really genuinely believe in um, the honeymoon effect. So it's not necessarily honeymoon period in a relationship, or an intimate romantic relationship, but honeymoon effect. So it's kind of like the red pill. It's it's you can decode and recode when you just turn to love, because on the other side of fear is love. As soon as you do the work on the other side of fear is love and love for yourself is where it all starts, isn't it? And that's how yeah. we access our wholeness and doing whatever it takes to be really good to our lovely selves and stop beating ourselves up. Like as if if you can imagine sitting on a couch with somebody, how awful would you be to them? you know, before they'd throw you out. Well, how awful do you tend to be to yourself in your own mind space? And, and you stick with it. You, you take that abuse all the time. So honeymoon effect is a wonderful way to look at life. And it's a great place to begin accessing your wholeness. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful as well. And I love the way you describe that. Like we, we berate ourselves. We can judge ourselves. The tone of our voice inwardly. We'd never treat our friends or our family like that. But we kill ourselves on the inside. And it's, it's really important, like the inner critic, that judgmental self-talk. It's really important to be aware of that. Because like I speak about it a lot, like our internal dialogue like language is a vehicle for emotion, especially when we talk to ourselves. And if you're berating yourself, I, that sends signals to it. The relay center of your brain, quick signal to the fear center of your brain, activates the stress response. That is what stress and anxiety does. Like they say, stress and anxiety comes in many flavors, but external, yes. But some of them are from the past, projecting or projecting into the future, and some of them are, are ruminating about the past. They come internally, and we can stress ourselves out. So it's really important to be aware of that inner narrative and and the tone of that inner narrative. And I think that's the space of awareness to become aware. How are you speaking? to yourself and what's the tone of that voice and once you become aware of that change happens absolutely so you spoke there of your morning routine and you do speak extensively about this in your talks and in your courses brian help us to understand how we can do that so give us those tools um, in a very accessible way that we can literally so whoever's driving in their car listening to us now or out for their run i was chatting with some of my friends in advance of beginning this podcast and they all said oh i'm going to be listening in on my run and it's interesting that you talk about um look at your smart screen and look at your smartphone and pay attention to the number of people People that were involved in building it, I had the most amazing oxytocin experience one day on a run when a massive big truck drove by me. And it was like wow. the Coca-Cola truck in the Christmas ad, you know, when you're a child. Yeah. It was just an absolutely amazing machine. It was massive, nearly blew me off the road for starters. That's why my attention was absolutely drawn to it. But I spent the rest of my run wondering who made every tiny, and it was amazing. It was really animated. It was absolutely like something you should have been driving out of a Disney film. And I spent the rest of my run 
contemplating the people the world over in the far corners and crevices of the world that I might never get to visit and throwing gratitude out there for them and to them for every tiny little light, every tiny little auto electric part. And then amazing at the fact that somebody somewhere was able to establish a building or a, a concept or an industry that could put it all together. I can't even build something with Lego. Yeah. And I was <laughs> honestly, I, I, I'm not joking. I, caught, I had to keep catching my breath on my run to keep in my pace in awe and wonder and awe. So, and that was a lurry. So imagine what Mother Nature can do for us. Yeah. So building practices of gratitude for sure and awareness and appreciation into our daily lives are so empowering. What else can we do? I know you speak about literally from the moment you waken up. Yeah, so so I I have what I call the Mavic technique. It's just my own technique. It's 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 my own technique with very um, well known uh, techniques within that as well. So Mavic stands for meditation, affirmations, visualization, inner child work, and gratitude. So meditation, we most people know about meditation. For me, affirmations are very important. I simply say to myself 10 times, I am happy, positive, energetic, and carefree. A lot of my PhD work looks at the relationship between language and emotions and psychological functions. As I said a few times, language is a vehicle for emotion. You can true statements. That's why affirmations can be so powerful because language is that vehicle for emotion. So um, visualization, I chatted about already. Like I think visualization is important, not to visualize what's coming into your life. Visualize how you can act on the world, what you're going to do. You're going to go out and be, do exercise. You're going to go out and do that talk, that presentation, be emotive, be confident. So it's about what you can do. And it gives you the permission to take bold steps towards them actions. So I think visualization is very important there as well. And then inner child work is really important for me. So I talked about the surgery at the start. I had other, other um, childhood traumas with my very loving but alcoholic parents at the time. And I, I literally just go back into the past and I take a minute or two to do this. The whole routine takes about 10 minutes, five minutes meditation, one minute of each, uh, one minute affirmations, one minute visualization, one minute inner child work and two minutes gratitude. That's what I'm doing right now. But the inner child work is really around I visualized my younger child, my infant self that had the surgery or the child that was looking out the corns waiting for me mom and dad to come home during drink drive. And that was just an experience I had for years. And I literally just cradle the infant or I go over to that little kid and I put my arm around them in that environment and say, I have you now. Everything's OK. And when we recode those older memories back into our brain, when we then recall them again, because of the inner child work, you're recalling a much safer place. And it's a really, really powerful technique. You're changing your conditioning because how you're acting anxiously in the moment is based on your past conditioning. So by doing that, you're changing your past conditioning. It's grounded in science and it's really, really powerful. But what I would say to anyone listening is, is to take baby steps. I've been doing this for a long time and I could just jump in and out of these things because I know them so well. So if you're on your run and you're listening to this, pick two things that are that are that you want to do. Gratitude is very easy and very powerful. And let's say affirmations, one minute each, start your morning routine with them. But consistency is the key. So make it easy and stay consistent because to build big habits, one of the first things you have to do is, is make it easy for yourself. Make it fit into your lifestyle. Take baby steps and let it build over time because that snowball will pick up more snow it'll keep on rolling down the hill and it will get to the stage where that snowball is unstoppable and you'll just wake up in the morning and do the right things and that's that's me big advice to people baby steps that's amazing so baby steps so that's really encouraging because when people haven't necessarily done any work on themselves brian when they haven't begun on this journey as it's now dubbed 
um, you know, they're a little bit scared of it. And, and mm-hmm. you know, they make strange with and they think, well, I'm not going to be going to a therapist. There's nothing wrong with me. And, you know, or, well, I'm not going to be, I might read these self-help books, but I'm not going to get caught reading. I certainly won't be reading them beside the pool. Not that any of us are traveling these days, yeah. but it's all about making strange with it, isn't it? So what you're saying is, <sighs> It doesn't have to be that, you know, big, obvious change in your life. It can just be a gear change neurologically. It can just be an awareness. And from awareness, then begin building in positive practices for positive change and begin immediately. Don't wait. So if you're on your run, begin right now. So listening to us intently with their conscious mind, Brian, and running then in a very automatic way because your body has learned how to do that. So praise your body for doing that. Praise your legs. Praise your hips. Praise your agility. Praise your lung capacity. Praise the fact that you got out of bed this morning, you pulled on your skins and you got out there. And praise, praise, praise. It's wonderful. You, you know, that heart coherence acts like an amplifier immediately into your brain space. And then you're upregulating your immune system. You're going to sleep better that night. And obviously, as you're sleeping better, you're putting a whole lot more spare capacity into the tank as well. So beginning with those small baby steps, as you say, what about somebody who is listening to us today, Ryan? Because this is all very real. It's so real. You're real. You're a human being. You've told us, um, you've, you know, you've bared your soul. You've told us how difficult it was. And, and you've admitted that two years into your recovery, you had a relapse. Very real. So many people, more people are going to uh, hear that than will not hear that or will think, oh, well, that doesn't pertain to me. So for the people listening, what can somebody do that wants to just okay, they're going to build in the baby steps to make those positive changes. But what happens if they need that little bit of help? If they realize, yeah, look, I'm at that crossroads. I need some help. What can they do? Yeah, I, I think I think reaching out to people is is always important. Like there's so many sources out there. Like we have the internet, we have books, we have blogs, we have podcasts and all these little things. And first of all, I think baby steps is very, very important. So take them baby steps. And it's about taking action. Nothing changes if nothing changes. And it's so basic, but this is the fact. Most people expect change without changing anything about their lives. And if you act, you'll shine because most people don't act. But if you act consistently, you'll be unstoppable. So the consistency is the key. But the challenge lies in that people find it so hard to implement consistent action. And it's because our brains love the path of least resistance. It always falls back onto old habits. So what I would say to people is reach out to somebody. And I think accountability partners can be great. Get a life coach, get a therapist. Therapists are amazing. And it gives you some kind of external accountability. I think another really important one as well, like it's another very, very simple thing is change your environment put post-its on your laptop put post-its on your mirror put post-its on your fridge put alarms in your phone if you want to go running put your running shoes out and hide your normal shoes change your environment and you'll change how you act if you're trying to eat more healthy don't buy junk food get rid of it out of your house and by changing your environment it's a game changer it's so simple and if you look at a lot of behavior modification principles uh, fundamentally i'd be a behavioral psychologist it's all about changing the environment. That's what changes the behaviors and then the consequences of that determine future behavior. So changing the environment and reaching out to people to become accountable, I think is two great ways to, to, to help you to put things into action. 
Absolutely. That for me is key, Brian, changing your environment. And that's what people need to yeah. hear. And I, I was hoping that I, w- I was going to try and kind of direct you in there, but I wanted it to come from you. I know, <laughs> well, you see, I know that people are hanging on your every word. You're the master of this craft. You've, you've given us this gift and it is the gift that just does not stop giving. So doing your courses, I'm saying to everybody out there, and you've kindly gifted us. So get busy after this podcast, guys. Brian has kindly gifted us. 10, 50% off attendances of his self-talk course. So I encourage you, get on those keyboards ASAP and join up. And if you don't catch the 50% off, treat yourself, guys. You get your hair done, you go to the gym, you get gym membership. Can I tell you, this is a bicep curl for your brain that you will not regret. His courses are amazing and his book is life-changing and life-giving. I really mean that. So Brian, Changing your environment is so important to me to hear you telling everybody that because I say that morning, noon and night to my clients. And I have had amazing testimony from uh, clients to who have completely changed their lives as well. And that was the biggest thing for them. So if you're a bog standard, ordinary Joe or Josephine Soap going to work every day in your hometown, where you always lived, where you got married and are rearing your children, Perhaps in a job that's quite public and you're very known to people, it's very difficult to change your environment or so people think. But when you unpick it, you realize it's like you say, it's all of those small subtleties of changing the pathway that you formerly took. So just do something differently. If you always do what you always did, you'll always get what you always got. So exactly like you say, do it differently. Shake it up. Don't allow yourself to become unconscious. It's in the unconscious that you're living out of habit. So you've got to live intentionally. And as you say, if you want to go for a run and you just can't get off the couch, put your shoes at the door and give yourself a clap on the back and say, well, that was my run the 5K in your head. You can do it. If the mind can perceive it, you can achieve it. And visualizations are so important as well. So it is the same biological process to remember your future as it is to remember your past. Wow. If we'd known, it's like the red shoes, like Dorothy in the red shoes. All we ever had to do was tap our heels. So once we know that, that's changing your environment because you're imagining it in your mind like it has already happened. The big key, though, because that's the positive thinking. And that's, you know, those of us that have been on this journey for quite a while, we've been on that quest to use positive thoughts and throw them out there as we desire it to be. The big trick is dial up the emotional arousal like you've already got it. So if you can get beyond your environment and imagine yourself clean, not having the wine when you walk in the door, get yourself, you know, another drink that you like to have, Pellegrino, more, I probably shouldn't advertise anyone, but like a nice uh, mineral water um, with a wedge of lime or something and make it look lovely. Put a nice big straw and a brolly in it, whatever you like. So you feel like you're at the party. Do that over a period of time. And when you go to change anything, get ready to feel a little bit uncomfortable for a while because... The patterns that you had set down are the familiar ground. And like you say, your brain is going to want to take you into the path of least resistance. But leverage yourself out of that. You can do it. As soon as you change your environment, you're on the cusp of far greater change. And when do you start? Start now. Do like Linford Christie. Get ready to go on the B of bang. The parting word of advice, and loads of things are coming to my mind, but I don't want to overcomplicate it. And I think it's something we touched on a little bit, but we didn't dive deep into it. And it's around these values-based decisions and actions. So write down, what do you value in your life? And some people struggle. I ask people this question, say, what do you value? And they say they don't know. Now, there's universal values like uh, honesty, kindness, courage, and stuff like that. And we all love them. 
boldness is the personal value of one. I love being bold, taking risks and putting myself out there. But we should be making values-based decisions. And if you're aware of your values, if they're more tangible values, like mental health, which it should be, and family is a, is a core value, then make decisions based on them values. So if you're if you're struggling with um, emotional eating and this thing, you will wake up and say, no, I value my physical health, my mental health. I'm going to go for a run. I'm making a values-based decision instead of a feelings-based decision, which is, no, I feel hungry, instant gratification. I'm going to eat that cake. So make values-based decisions. Think about your values. And a great way to think about your values is if you were at your own funeral, what would your friends, what would you want your friends to say about you? Yeah. Think of someone you admire of the values they have, humility, composure. I think of someone that you don't like so much and do the opposite of them. Like we won't say any names, but there's political figures out there that you wouldn't value what they value. So we all have different things. So think about things like that to get your values and know them, write them down and try to act towards them. I think it's crucial. That's amazing. So practice making values-based decisions instead of emotionally charged decisions. So what exactly are emotions? Emotions are the end result of experience. Thoughts are the language of the brain. Emotions are the language of the body. If you can tell yourself that different story at that crucial time, you can make decisions based on the desired result in keeping with your values as opposed to acting on impulse in an emotionally charged way. So if you've long since decided that you're going to quit something, anything that doesn't serve you, let's consider that decision in the context of a factory a company or a workplace. Your brain on this occasion is the factory and the dorsolateral prefrontal cortex is the part in the brain that we're going to call the boss. But we all know that any good company is run by the secretary. So for the purpose of this example, the anterior cingulate in the brain is the boss's secretary and the amygdala, the Tasmanian devil, is the security officer. So the amygdala is going to keep an eye on the substances that appear most frequently in your bloodstream and it'll send a signal to the boss's secretary to top up the levels when it looks like they're dropping. Now, the boss may have made a decision to quit, but the secretary can sprinkle dopamine on the memos that she leaves on the boss's desk, prompting you to cave when you crave. The boss's secretary will then check the paperwork in the filing room in your brain, the hippocampus, to see how have you stored away your memory of the substance or the attachment or the stress hormone that your habit requires a fix of. Because, you know, you can actually be addicted just in the same way to anger and drama as you are to substance. And those dopamine-soaked memories will be dumped on the boss's desk until you give in. So whoever has power over the memory store has power over the addiction. If you can manage the euphoric memories, the attachment that you have emotionally to whatever substance or hormone, stress hormone that you're experiencing in habit form, if you can dissociate the euphoric memory from the substance, you can manage addiction. It's very important, very quickly to replace that euphoric memory with realisms and truths. It wasn't a great night. You weren't great crack. You were off your bin lid. You were sick, sore and tired for days after it. It doesn't work. It's time to stop. How many more day ones are you going to subject yourself to? 
And just like Brian's story, when you can get to the far side of addiction, you've got clarity. And in that clarity, you can learn from your past and your memories without the emotional arousal are wisdom. And in that wisdom, you can make these emotionally charged decisions turn into values-based decisions. You can turn your life around just like you did, Brian. Yeah, 100%. And it's, it's been a game changer for me. And there's a couple of values-based decisions that I made in my life that have literally changed my entire life. So it's something to be, be aware of and, and constantly pivot on that as well then, you know, and, and think, reflect on your values. I think they're, they're crucial. And what, so what would you say the most important or pivotal values-based decisions are that one might pay attention to in advance of hoping to change your environment and to change your life? Right. Well, it really depends. It's, it'd be personal to any moment with people. So it's any time you need to make a big decision. Like you're not going to be thinking about what you're, you, you go to the shop and close. I need to make a values-based decision. It's really about what you're going to do. So something something for me will be like, and it depends on your values. If you're someone that values being industrious, accountable, you do what you say. It's really a, a continuous process over time to keep them in motion. And if you get up in the morning, let's say that's a great one. So you, you value being accountable. You value getting stuff done, being productive and growth so you don't hit the snooze button you say no i'm making a values-based decision i'm getting out of bed and jump out of bed and get into action and i think that's really crucial whether it's someone starting a morning routine the the, the, the amygdala the reptilian brain will seek comfort and safety because that's all it knows it hasn't got the language around the new world that we live in and it'll say i want safety i want comfort i want to chill out say no i'm making a values-based decision i'm accountable I'm industrious. I get stuff done and make that decision. So I think it can be really good in this environment around people with being a little bit inactive. And then with addiction stuff as well, just catch it in the moment and say, no, I value connection. I value being sober. I value sobriety. I value not doing them things. So catch it and make a values-based decision instead of having that drink, having that cigarette, whatever that is. That's it. That, that's key, Ryan. So deciding those values-based decisions in advance, get them on the post-its, get them all over the place. I value sobriety. I value my healthy, happy, wholesome self. I value my clear head in the morning. I value the fact that I don't, um, you know, think negatively about what I might have done the night before or check the bin to see what I've eaten or, you know, check the RTE guide to see what I watched on TV last night or whatever. So get those values-based decisions in place, get them written down, get them visible, uh, talk to yourself about them so that they're there in place. And, and that's your brick wall that you can hide behind when that awful addiction tries to get in. Brian, we're coming very close to the end of that amazing chat and this first show in the series of Hole in One with Sheila. I thank you from the heart of my bottom. You have been amazing. And uh, the whole journey with you has been amazing. Um, in, in the lead up to today, I, I know you know yourself what I'm talking about. Um, I'm crossing rivers of change myself. I've left a 30-year career in teaching behind and I'm launching into a wannabe career in media. So it has been amazing to make this very special trip across that first threshold into media with you, Brian. I thank you so much. Thank you on everybody's behalf. I encourage everybody to read everything you ever write, follow you, get over there onto LinkedIn, Instagram, eat, drink, sleep, every word that Brian Penny says, because it is the Bible for change. Brian, thank you so much. We'll chat very soon Thanks. again. So much, Sheila. Thanks very much. Bye-bye. Thank you so much. Thank you, everybody. I look forward to chatting with you all again next week on Hole in One with Sheila on Voice America Empowerment Channel. Bye for now. Slán Gafoil.
Thank you again for joining us for Whole in One. Please join your host, Sheila E. Hirine, for another edition of this amazing program next Wednesday at 12 noon U.S. Pacific Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. Until we meet again, remember no matter the question, love is the answer. You've got this.